This evening, our scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9. It is a longer section that we're looking at. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. I thought originally about splitting it into two sermons, but the overall theme is basically the same, even though it is a larger portion of text than we sometimes look at. Um, I will warn you, if you've read it, in contrast to last week's uh, Christmas sermon, this sermon will tell you why we needed that Christmas sermon. I was warning some of the men earlier as we were praying before the service, this is going to make us all feel kind of bad today. But nevertheless, it's a reminder to us exactly why it is we need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if it drives all of us to repentance, if it drives any of us to repentance, then even these warnings, these words of judgment, have proven to be a means of grace in that person's life. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath Of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, 
and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. It is, as we know, especially in our reform circles, difficult to have to talk with Christians about the reality of God's judgment. Certainly difficult to talk about unbelievers, but even Christians. They just want to put that topic aside. God is love after all. Jesus is all about love. He talked about angels more than he talked about love. And how often do you hear a good sermon on angels? Now, having said that, it is important to stress that we are not minimizing God's love by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, you have heard me time and time again say the importance of understanding God and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice and his hatred of sin to help us understand his love all the more, that he would love sinners such as ourselves, that he would send his own son to die for sinners. That's what we saw last week in looking at the first portion of chapter 9, the child who was to be born of us, the son who was to be given, which, of course, we know, and how much more we know on this side of the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. That that referred to him and all things would be on, on, on his shoulders as opposed to the burden of sin that was on ours. But in case we forget, in case Israel forgets, they need to be reminded of why they need this child in the first place. As we think about this text, it's a little bit difficult because the exact timing of when this may have been said is quite debatable. Whether it's a little bit earlier, whether it follows immediately after these conversations that Isaiah had with Ahaz, it's not completely clear, but there is, there is warrant for thinking it could be on either end of the time spectrum that people talk about. You see, it really doesn't matter in one sense because at the end of the day, the message is still the same. It was the same people living in that same sin. So whether this was immediately following the conversation with Ahaz or sometime after, it's not completely known. But the reality of God's judgment is being brought to bear upon his own people. And that's something even we as Christians ought to remind ourselves of because it is this from which Christ has rescued us. The judgment of Almighty God because of our sin. And the thing about it is, and as we look through this text, this larger section, this larger prophecy of four stanzas, 
One of the things that you may have noticed is how God's judgment itself does not seem satisfied in one sense because it keeps going against the wicked. As we think about the reality of what our sin deserves, we think about the reality of what happens when Christ returns and the final judgment is made and those who belong to Christ are ushered in to the presence of Christ himself and those who are wicked, those who remain in their sin, what awaits them but an eternity of hell? That's what I mean by not satisfied. Oh, he will satisfy his justice. But as you notice, even in this text, when you see the punishments that are already meted out at the end of each stanza for all of this, the Lord's anger still is upon them. And that should humble all of us. It should humble the wicked as well. What I hope to show from this text is actually quite simple and quite clear. The Lord's judgment against wickedness will be unrelenting. The Lord's judgment against wickedness will be unrelenting. I had mentioned four stanzas, and that's basically the breakdown of the text. We'll look at it at four points, each broken by that same expression that we see. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Four times ending each stanza. So first, we'll see Israel's arrogance. Second, we'll look at Israel's impenitence. Third, Israel's punishment. And finally, Israel's evil. So first of all, Israel's arrogance. Look again at verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will, re- we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. The Lord has sent a word. And you notice there that Lord is not in all caps. This is Adonai, the sovereign one. He has sent a word against Jacob. That is the northern tribes. So now the focus is back on the northern tribes. This word will fall on Israel. All the people will know. And Ephraim sent forth or put forth as representing all the northern tribes and all the inhabitants of Samaria. They will receive this word. And why are they receiving this word? Well, the Lord spells it out. Because of what they say in their pride and arrogance. Their pride and arrogance. Notice They acknowledge that there's a problem. They acknowledge that they're in trouble, but they fail to acknowledge why they're in trouble, and they also think, we'll be okay. We're fine. The bricks have fallen, but we'll build with dressed stones. 
It's going to be better. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be stronger. We can do this. The sycamores, they've been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. Bigger, stronger, better, because we've got this ability. And all the while, they fall to under, fail to understand why it is the bricks fell in the first place, why the sycamores were cut down in the first place. What makes them think against the wrath of Almighty God that their dressed stones will stand, that their cedars will stand? Well, the Lord responds, but the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. Rezin was the king of Syria, and he was trying to form an alliance with the northern tribes to kind of go against Assyria. And then Ahaz in Judah was trying to team up with Assyria. Isn't politics fun? Well, unfortunately, as you look, as you notice here in verse 12, and this perplexed me when I was thinking about this, you have the Syrians on the east and then the Philistines on the west. They devour Israel with open mouth. And I'm thinking, how did this happen? How did the Syrians suddenly turn on Israel? Well, Calvin points out, it seems, and others have have kind of followed him, that the Assyrians did kill Rezin, king of Syria. And once that happened, the nation turned against the northern tribes. And they went against Israel. Be careful who you form an alliance with. It won't take much, especially with one who is as wicked as Syria was, to simply turn on you. And this is why the church needs to be careful not to make friends with the world because they will turn on a dime against you. And this is the judgment that comes. And notice the mention of the Philistines. You know, we don't hear much from the Philistines after David's day. We do on occasion. Here, we see it later in in, uh, Chronicles as well, but not much. But the point here is not that it's necessarily specifically the Syrians, though it probably was, and the Philistines, though it probably was. It could have been anybody. The point is they are completely surrounded and there is no escape from either side. So much for their dressed stones. So much for their cedars that they plan on building. They, these will come and devour Israel with open mouth. And you think about this and you think, what a dreadful judgment that the nation is facing. And then you come to the end of the first stanza. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. In other words, even after all this judgment of the Syrians and the Philistines from both sides, the cutting down of the sycamores, the toppling of the bricks, God's hand was stretched out still. For all this, despite all this happening to Israel, the judgment of God was still upon them. Unrelenting judgment. It's a warning to you and to me 
against pride and arrogance. And we in the Reformed Church have a, a, a rather easy way to become prideful. After all, we love our theology. We love to cite the confession of faith and catechisms. By the way, it's a good thing. You hear me do it often enough. But sometimes we use these things and we look down upon other Christians who don't know these things almost as if they were peasants. When the truth of the matter is, with all the theology that we love and desire to learn and study and and store up in our brains, it needs to affect our hearts, it needs to affect our hands, it should actually humble us. Because we of all people know that we could only survive by the grace of God that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know, we know the doctrine of total depravity. We know the doctrines and the attributes of God concerning his hatred against sin and all unrighteousness. And all of that should humble us and also give us thanks. Rather, sometimes there are those who come across as so arrogant in their knowledge. This must never be. May we not fall into the trap of thinking or having the attitude of Israel's arrogance. Well, this brings us to our second point, Israel's penitence. Look now at verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. The people did not turn to him or return. Typically, the verb that's used there means return. And Although it's not usually translated this way in the Old Testament, it's usually translated turn or return, the concept that is here is one of repentance. The people would not repent. They've been confronted with their sin. They refuse to repent. The Lord strikes them. They still refuse to repent. They refuse to inquire of the Lord of hosts. There we see the the name of God, the great I am, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. They refuse to inquire of the Lord. Instead, they make alliances with pagan nations. They live in unrepentant sin because they think their way is best. And see, even professing Christians can fall into this trap of refusing to repent because, after all, God's a gracious God. God is love. Jesus loves me just the way I am. How often we hear and see people say this. No, my friends, Jesus loves you despite the way you are, despite the way I am. He loved me anyway. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul in practical praise in Galatians 2.20, he thinks about the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. But Israel was completely impenitent. And because of this, notice what Isaiah says happens. Jehovah, the great I am, cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed, In one day, 
just like that. It's sort of like the expression, pride goes before a fall. And usually it happens pretty quick. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. Who are this head and tail? Well, the next verse tells us the elder and the honored man, that's the head. The people in high positions, the people who are respected. And then the tail, it's the prophet who teaches lies. That's who the head and tail are. And notice what happens as a result of the head and the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. You see, it is interesting because the Lord does indeed blame those who are responsible for giving the bad advice, the bad direction, the bad commands, rules, prophecies that are lies. And yet the people are foolish enough to follow it. Both are judged. Both are swallowed up. The head and tail are cut off and the people are swallowed up. Those who listened, they are swallowed up. Now, brothers and sisters, that should be a reminder to each of you. Don't listen to any bad preaching, teaching, or whatever that might ever come from this pulpit. Even if it's from me. This is why we are to be Bereans. We search the word of God to see if what is being proclaimed is true. The people are swallowed up. They're consumed. And notice in verse 17, because of their sin, because of their impenitence, because they are being swallowed up, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. And then this next portion, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widow. That's a most remarkable statement. Why? Because they're just as wicked. They may be helpless ones. And in fact, we talk about this a little bit later on in this same prophecy as we continue just into the next stanza or two. But even the fatherless and the widow are godless. And so because of it, the Lord has no compassion on them either. It really does a lot to the whole social justice movement today. Oh, we have to help the disenfranchised. I don't disagree, but if they are going to be godless and wicked, the Lord will show them no compassion. For he is holy and just. Notice, this is what Isaiah says, everyone is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. Well, the word here could also be translated, as you notice in the ESV, the footnote there, speaks disgraceful things. The things that come out of their mouth are disgraceful. That's passages like this that reminded me of what our Savior said concerning the mouth. 
It's out of the overflow of the heart that a man speaks. And their disgraceful things that are coming from their mouth are a result of what is in their heart. And they refuse to turn from it. And therefore, they are swallowed up. And surely you think, maybe this will be the end. Maybe they've learned their lesson. But at the end of verse 17, we see that same refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Well, my friends, this is for you and for me. If God's people in the Old Testament, due to their impenitence, suffer the consequences for it, and God's judging hand is still upon them, that should serve as a warning for you and for me that we ought to be men and women, boys and girls, willing to repent of our sin. The Lord is calling us to repentance. And the beauty is, we know from the rest of Scripture, those who do repent, he will never cast off. Those who truly flee to him in hatred and grief over their sin and the fact that they've sinned against God, he will not turn away. He will welcome you with open arms for the sake of Jesus Christ, his his only son, whom he put forth to pay for your sin. but I already am a Christian. I have given my heart to Christ. But our life should be one of continued faith and repentance. We break God's law in thought, word, and deed all the time. And what a grace it is on God's part not to expose us of all our sin all at once. But he continues to sanctify us to expose our sin where we need to repent, and he gives us the grace of repentance that we might flee to him. We must not be like Israel and live in impenitent sin. Well, this brings us then to our third point, Israel's punishment. Look now at verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. This description, this this picture of what wickedness does, you've got these briars, you've got these thorns, you've got Thickets that are out there in the forest. We might think of it, we can even picture it, tumbleweeds out there. The dry grass all around. And the brush fires that sometimes hit. You know what happens when the grass is so dry? You you have fire bands. Why? Because it can strike up and spread so fast. We even have an expression for it that we use in other circumstances. It spreads like wildfire. Because we know how fast it can go. 
That's what wickedness does within the midst of God's people. It spreads so fast. It really does not take very long. And the effects of it and the harm that it can cause is like this wildfire. That's what's happening. The wickedness is just run rampant. And then you come to verse 19 and it turns around. Not only is the wickedness rampant, but because it's rampant, so is the wrath of God. So is the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lord of hosts. It's through the wrath of the Lord of hosts that the land is scorched. Their very self-centered wickedness becomes itself its own self-destruction. Their own wickedness as a result becomes God's means of wrath against them so that it consumes them. And so the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. It's not just the brush, it's the people. They're like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. It's every man for himself. We think about the expression of sinking ships. Women and children first. Not in this case. Everyone is on their own. No one spares another. And you notice how bad it gets as we consider verses 20 and 21. They slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. There's a couple ways to think of it. It could be that the food is scarce, or it could be that they're trying to devour what they can, and they're just not satisfied. And in fact, as we think about the context of wickedness and sin, that's what happens. Wickedness becomes something we can't get enough of. It's the Turkish delight that Edmund would eat from the white witch. And if memory serves, it's not even like he liked the stuff. But he couldn't stop. It would not satisfy. And so bad did it get at the end of verse 20 that each devours the flesh of his own arm. A gruesome picture of the effects of wickedness. And then, of course, the punishment that is meted out for that wickedness. The wrath of the Lord will scorch the land. And it gets so bad as you look in verse 21. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they are against Judah. Now, what's the significance of Manasseh and Ephraim here? Those are the two sons of Joseph. They're the closest brothers. They're supposed to be the closest brothers. And yet here they are devouring one another. That's how bad it has gotten. This is what happens when they wallow in wickedness and the Lord meets out his judgment and punishment. As we know, especially reading passages like we see in 2 Kings, we know the stories of how one woman cries out from the wall to the king, 
give me justice because we made an agreement that we would actually devour our children. That's how bad it got. All because of their sin. All because of their wickedness. And you think, surely this must be the end. But here at the end of verse 21, again the refrain, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. When will this end? I think that's the point. This brings us to our fourth and final point, Israel's evil. Look now at chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people in their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. A woe is pronounced. We think about the woes that Christ pronounced against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. It's a declaration of judgment. And notice that it is God himself who pronounces this woe. And it's upon those who by decree write iniquitous decrees, sinful decrees, And the repetition is there in the Hebrew. You've got a verb and a noun that are the same root to emphasize it. They decree decrees of iniquity. Their laws are deliberately wicked, self-serving. They turn aside the needy from justice. They rob the poor of their right. Widows become the spoil. Fatherless become their prey. So it is not as though God does not concern, is not concerned about justice. And it's ironic because we just saw earlier how the Lord had no compassion because these widows and the fatherless, they too were wicked, but it still does not absolve those who are using them as, as prey especially because they're the ones who write the decrees. They're the ones who write the laws. Verse 3. Question, a rhetorical question is asked. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Rhetorical questions asked of those who are so evil that they refuse to turn, repent, and inquire of the Lord. Where will you go? The obvious answer is there's nowhere they can go. We think of Psalm 139 when David wrote, where can I go from your presence? And he wrote that all in terms, in positive terms. But the same is true for those who are going to face his wrath. There is no place that they can turn and flee from God's wrath. 
And so dreadful is this wrath. We think about in in Revelation chapter 6, the mighty men who cry out to the mountains to fall on them because they're afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. They would rather mountains bury them alive than face the wrath of Jesus Christ. We do the world no favors when we hide God's displeasure against sin. We do the world no favors if we hide the fact that God will indeed judge all men with equity. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, He's also a gracious God. He is a God who delights in showing mercy. He is a God who offered up his own son to bear that very wrath that you and I deserve. To whom will you flee for help? The answer is, my friends, you flee to Jesus Christ, your only hope, and he will not cast you off. For Israel, it gets so bad. As you look here in verse 4, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. The interesting thing is the word that's translated here by the ESV and other translations, among, is actually under. It's actually under. Nothing remains but to crouch under the prisoners or fall under the slain. To hide. There's nowhere to go. And you think, surely this is it. The end of verse 4, the fourth time it's reiterated. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. You see, there is a sense where even as Christians, statements like that really ought to Well, terrify us. Because after all, we know as Bible-believing Christians that that's actually what we deserve. And yet at the same time, we rejoice in God, our Savior, who saved us from his wrath. We're saved by God, from God, to give glory to God. What a remarkable truth. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And you think about this prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 4, and you realize this was earthly. You see, when Christ returns, as I mentioned earlier, for the wicked for the rebellious, for Satan himself, nothing but an eternity in the lake of fire will await them. I would commend to you a sermon that my wife and I heard a few months back 
from Carl Robbins, who's a PCA pastor, pastor of Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church outside of Greenville, South Carolina. He preached a sermon from Luke chapter 16 on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And one of the things that he stressed was that when Lazarus, when the rich man died, Lazarus died. Lazarus was lifted up to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man went to torment. He was in torment. And you know the story of how the rich man just begged that Lazarus would would just dip his finger in water and touch his tongue for some sense of relief. And you read Isaiah chapter 9 and you think, wow, this is harsh. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. You see, at the end of the day, the rich man in that parable, he had everything in this life to point him to the right way. He even said, hey, let me send Lazarus. They have Moses and the prophets. No, but if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. You see, the word of God is ultimately sufficient to convince and convert sinners. You don't need dramatics. You don't need movies. You don't need TV shows. You don't need concerts. Can the Lord use these things? Of course he can. But the word that he has given is sufficient for these things. As Abraham in that parable told the rich man, if they don't believe Moses, they're not going to believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. And that's a parable in Luke chapter 16. We know from John's gospel, particularly chapter 11, that it proved true as the Jews, the ruling class of the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, they witnessed, they saw Lazarus come forth. Different Lazarus, by the way. They saw when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. They saw him come. And what was their reaction? Did they turn to Christ? Did they flee to him in faith? Did they repent of their sins? No, they sought to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. They had the word and they still didn't believe. They witnessed someone raised from the dead and they still did not believe. You see, at the end of the day, it is all of God's grace. And he uses his word. All of us need to present the word of God. We shouldn't shy away from it, but we should also show the totality of it. The gospel is amazing grace. It's amazing because of what it is we deserve. That the God who is holy, righteous, and just, who must punish sin, found a way to save sinners like you and me through the blood of his only begotten son. 
That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. That's what makes grace so amazing. Flee to Christ. Do not be like Israel in their impenitence, in their arrogance, in their wickedness. When they refuse to turn, this passage warns everyone, including his own people who profess faith in Christ, including his church. It warns all of us. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. His judgment will be unrelenting when it comes. And this is what Christ bore for you who have faith in him. The unrelenting wrath of God in our place. This is why at Gethsemane he sweated, he sweat drops of blood because who more than Christ knew what awaited him. He knew he would be bearing the wrath and curse of his own father on our behalf, and yet he went. And this is why we rejoice in our Savior. But we also pray that the Lord would avenge his people. And this is where it gets difficult, because we deal with psalms, for instance, that are imprecatory psalms. And you remember, as we went through the psalms, I said it is not for you to use an imprecatory psalm for that guy who cut you off on the highway. As tempting as that may be. But rather, we hope and pray that the Lord would show grace to the world, but if in his will they will not repent, that God's justice would be meted out. Our Lord Jesus Christ will come again. And those who have come to him in faith, he will usher in and he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. There is a sense where we as true believers in Christ, we need not fear God's wrath because we'll never experience it. But we should be faced with what his word says about his wrath that we may be driven to our knees in thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. And it should also stir us on with a sense of urgency to the lost. This is what awaits you, but Christ can rescue you. Christ can save and does save the worst of sinners. He bore this wrath in our place. May the Lord give us the confidence to know our Savior, Jesus Christ. May he give us the courage and the true sense of love for the lost that we would warn them that Christ is coming, but he will also save those who come to him in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God in heaven, how we thank you for your word. Even a difficult passage such as this. We think about how last week we saw the promised child referencing Christ and then to look at a passage like this concerning judgment. Oh, how the light of Christ looks so much more beautiful now. Father God, we do pray.
that you would judge the world with equity. Save your people, Lord. Save those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. Use us as instruments of grace. But Lord, we also know that you will indeed judge sin. Vengeance is yours. And it will come someday. Oh Lord, thank you for saving us because we deserved to feel and face your vengeance. But now, through Christ, we know, feel, and experience your love and grace. Thank you, O our God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.